This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. HPC Wire and Intersect 360 Research wrap up SC21 at the Dell HPC Community Meeting This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snow with Intersect 360 Research, and this week in HPC, Dan Olds and I were joined by Tiffany Trader and Oliver Peckham of HPC Wire as part of a special pe- presentation at the Dell HPC Community Meeting. You can find more about the Dell HPC Community at dellhpc.org. Tiffany, Oliver, Dan, and I took on a lot of topics wrapping up SC21, including Exascale, the Top 500 list, Chinese supercomputing, Euro HPC, the processor wars, composability, and surprises and other companies and takeaways from 2021. Rather than do a separate podcast, we thought we'd let you listen in to that wonderful discussion I got to have with the team during the Dell HPC community meeting event. So uh, with SC21 in the rearview mirror, um, the first major supercomputing conference to return in person since the start of the pandemic, to my understanding, uh, different in a lot of ways than those that came before it, uh, but not without its surprises. And maybe an appropriate capstone to a year that itself has kind of been full of twists and turns, to put it a little mildly. Uh, let's start by talking about the elephants in the room, which made headlines kind of by not making headlines. Uh, Tiffany, there was some pretty big news that dropped during SE21, but uh, not maybe in the places we've come to expect. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Hey, Oliver. Um, I think we're going to get into our, our uh, SE experience since we were all there in a little bit. But sure, we can we can definitely start there. You know, the top 500 list came out and there weren't a lot of new changes on that. The the Japanese uh, ARM-based Fugaku system was still on top. And what we what we also didn't see there, although we'd heard some buzz, was about these Chinese systems. But we did learn more about those systems at the show. Uh, David Kahaner, who's from uh, ATIP, that's the Asian Technology Information Program, he um, provided some details on these two exascale systems, uh, Ocean Light, uh, which is in Qingdao, uh, Ching, Ching, China, um, reportedly uh, completed earlier this year in March um, in achieving 1.05 exaflops out of 1.3. And then there was another system, Tianhe 3. You've probably heard the name Tianhe before. This is Tianhe 3 in the in Tianjin uh, Supercomputing Center based on a Phytium um, uh, ARM chip and a matrix accelerator. That was uh, reportedly completed at the end of October uh, with an estimated 1.7 exaflops uh, peak and 1.3 exaflops slim pack and that that wasn't the only details that we heard on that they were also revealed a bit in some research papers uh, particularly that sunway that ocean light sunway system uh was um written about in some peer-reviewed papers in fact the the winning paper that you wrote about this oliver the winning paper of the gordon bell prize uh used that ocean light system and they uh the other system the tanner three was used for the for one of the runners up, one of the nominated one, one of the nominated entries for the Gordon Bell Special Prize for for COVID, used that Tianhe three. Um, one of the other things, the kind of the subtext for this whole discussion, I think, was where there are fabbing their chips. If you look at David Kahaner's slides from the uh, SE Top 500 BOF, I have a few of those in my my article. He mentions, you know, p- potentially AMD technology. Um, 
I know that was that was used uh, licensed um, on an earlier system uh, that we had we had talked about a couple of years ago. Um, and then when I interviewed Jacqueline Guerra, he had expressed concern um, that there's some sourcing of chips from PSMC. So I don't have confirmation of those things, but that that's what some of those um, people were talking about um, at the show. I don't know any other any other thoughts on that from your the other panelists. Tiffany, I would just say, first of all, I think you did an excellent job wrapping it up. And I was surprised how much we did learn about the Chinese systems. And yeah. uh, from a journalist standpoint, you did a great job summarizing. And I'll only say from an analyst standpoint, that if you include the systems that aren't on the list, we have to be aware that China now has the top two systems, both at exascale, four of the top five and six of the top 10. And Dan, you had some thoughts on their developments there. But then from an analyst standpoint, it's difficult difficult for us to decide how much revenue, if any, gets counted here because these systems are built, not bought. There's no sale. There's no system vendor for a lot of these, which makes it a little tricky from a market size standpoint, Dan. Yeah, I would say that having traveled to China and actually several of those trips with Tiffany, uh, we've sat in on their HPC um, planning sessions there. Their, um, market or their discussions of where they're going and they were very clear after 2015 that they were going to go with homegrown components they didn't want to be at anybody else's mercy again and actually 2015 is when the u.s cut off uh intel and phi components from them intel phi components from them which stopped them from upgrading uh the biggest supercomputer in the world at the time and i think it's amazing and somewhat troubling to realize that they've gone from zero to exascale in about six and a half years. And we haven't gotten there yet. And they've done it with homegrown technology. And we, the West, have that technology. And we're not there yet. Yep. Um, and the US does have, of course, three exascale systems coming down the pike with a Frontier, Aurora, and El Capitan. Um, from the folks I talked to, there was uh, every intention of getting Frontier up and benchmarked and, and running for the top 500 list. Um, I think they fell just, uh, just just short of that, but I do think we'll we'll see that system at least one. I, I expect we'll see at least one exascale system uh, in time for the next the next top 500 list from, from the U.S. We had initially thought that we would see revenue from Frontier to HPE in this calendar year and built it into our models there. Now it seems unlikely at best that HPE will revenue um, Frontier within the next couple of weeks, but I guess it's possible and we'll see. And I don't believe we're going to see an exascale system from Europe until 2023 and probably late in the year, if then. Mm. Oliver, you were just coming back in. I was just going to bring up Europe, and I was going to say uh, I've been very impressed by the EuroHPC initiative, and they brought their first, uh, you know, top 500 ranking systems and their first systems generally online this year. Um, and now, of course, they're they're starting to unveil their plans for Exascale. We still don't know where those systems are going to be, but you know, if you draw draw a map of where their current planned systems are and find what's circled in the middle, I'm sure you can uh, start to figure it out. Um, but that, you know, we've got three major continents playing in uh, Exascale. And, uh, you know, I think the, the game right now is just to be number two by not too much of a margin. Yep, good point. 
I agree. And I think one of the more interesting companies I met with that I didn't know enough about going into the show was CyPearl. And I had a meeting scheduled with them, which then became a lot more important after uh, Jeff McVeigh from Intel at the start of the show announced the partnership with CyPearl with regard to EuroHPC, which is uh, lining up uh, CyPearl together with Ponte Vecchio. Uh, Now, a lot of what I heard was under NDA, and I'm not going to dive into it there, but I would say that CyPearl is is one of the companies I met with that uh, that I was definitely interested in getting a briefing from. And I would say the scuttlebutt that I'm hearing is that there's still some doubt as to what accelerator will be used, but that's been cleared up uh, to some degree with uh, Intel and Pata Vecchio coming in. I don't know exactly what this means for Risk Five because Risk Five was the public incumbent for the accelerator for that system. Right, right, Dan. But uh, I think Cyprol is emblematic of the accelerating processor. Cyprol and the EPI, the European Processor Initiative, kind of emblematic of the accelerating processor diversity we're seeing. So in their original plans, I mean, they have that ARMREA chip that's going to be the uh, the centerpiece. Mm-hmm. I spoke with them as well. And then they, they have been talking about that. That was actually a stepping stone to using RISC-V as the the processor of uh, the general processor, although their initial plans for RISC-V were to, to um, use it as an accelerator. Yeah. So they have this roadmap, but now, like you said, they're they're working with Intel and the Ponte Vecchio GP. So where do, where do all these things fit in together? And potentially, I mean, yes, we don't know the exact status um, of RISC-V in the project, but potentially RISC-V could be the, the CPU that Ponte Vecchio plugs into. So that's that's on the table too. But to me, that's what leads to my earlier statement that this is going to be delayed. Yeah. So let's uh, take this chip talk and uh, broaden it out. You know, we obviously the landscape included more than Exascale at SC21 and throughout the year. And we, you know, there's the ongoing uh, CPU, GPU brawl that's always fun to update on. Where are we standing with uh, AMD, Intel, NVIDIA, ARM? It is... Hot. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I was just going to say that this is every, I don't know, three, four, five years, actually longer than that, we have a time when everybody seems to be hitting on all cylinders in terms of processors and what results is a chip war. And I think that we are aiming for the chip war of all chip wars with it happening on both the uh, CPU front and the GPU accelerator front. Yeah, I, a lot of this happened outside of the show floor, whereas, you know, we were there in person. Uh, I, th- I think there was a parallel virtual conference going on at the same time. And some of the uh, processing element stuff actually came out before because AMD did their uh, Milan X and MI200 launch, which was huge. And then NVIDIA had GTC, where I thought they appropriately focused more on software than hardware and the total ecosystem they had built up around CUDA. I think Numeric with Python was one of the most important hidden gems within that. And uh, from a hardware standpoint, of course, they had uh, the uh, Mellanox NDR InfiniBand, uh, which is not to be ignored. And I, I think watching what they do with 
uh, uh, with DPUs is interesting. What was new at supercomputing, um, it's weird to see that what was new was from Intel, but I, I felt like we had a renewed energy from Intel in that Jeff McVeigh keynote that started the whole thing in their virtual HPC and AI pavilion. It just brought a new energy to it where he was talking about Sapphire Rapids as a fire-breathing performance monster. Uh, that kind of, I think, borrowed back some of AMD's swagger to go in and, and hit like that. And even subtle phrases like we engineers, Jeff said, you know, at the start of a sentence, I think is important in terms of just setting the tone and how Intel intends to deliver. I would also throw back though to the Pat Gelsinger speech before that, a few months before, he actually did overclocking on stage. They're letting their inner geek fly. And I think that's all to the good for the company. But AMD, that announcement on Monday before uh, SC, that was like, in my mind, Michael Corleone at the end of Godfather 1 saying he's going to settle all the business with all the five families. And they laid the smack down on Intel and NVIDIA and ARM. And anybody else who wants to challenge for CPU and GPU leadership. Now, can they hold on to this and execute? Open question but they certainly have kicked off the war. And, uh, and hearkening back to the top 500, you know, AMD had a really big showing on the, on the list this year. That's right. Yeah. They uh, power now four out of the top 10 machines and 73 systems on the list. That's a 15% jumps, 15% uh, share up 10% from the last time and up a threefold jump from one year ago. Um, also that risk, lots of interest in risk five, the risk five summit was happening this week. Um, really, Beating, thumping their chest and saying they have every intention of going head to head uh, and going after that server processor market. I know, Dan, you were tuned into that as well. Did you, what were your takeaways from that? I was, it was a lot of, um, a lot of storm and fury, but I was looking for, you know, more references, I guess, and a little more progress on that. But they're, definitely a player and they're hitting above their weight in terms of of industry profile and then one final uh, note on these chip wars is just you know just in the last few days we had the ftc weighing in against the uh, uh -huh. nvidia acquisition of arm dan i really like your quote in the article in enterprise ai referring to the deal as is dead, maybe not dead, parrot dead, but mostly dead. Nice blend of two different movies there. Yeah. Or, or skit and movie, show and movie. Yeah, I've been saying for months that someone's going to veto this. Uh, this deal has to be passed upon and approved by the EU, by the UK, by China, and by the US. And with the FTC signaling great disapproval of it with their lawsuit, um, I think that that it's, again, very much mostly dead, maybe not dead parrot dead, but I do believe that China will make sure it's dead parrot dead. Yeah, and, and it may not even get to that point, right? I think that's one of the right. interesting things of this is that we thought that China would be the biggest barrier stumbling block, and it's um, it may not even get that far through the European and U.S. approval process. So. Good point. I think this maybe is where we start talking about uh, our experience at SC21 as an event. Um, you know, it's a milestone in the supercomputing community, a large hybrid conference held amid an ongoing pandemic. 
we were all there um, in person. Uh, what did everyone think? I love the Sugar Fingers barbecue. Just want to say that. I want to get a little shout out to Sh them. Sugar Fire, was it? Sugar Fire. Sugar I'm fire. sorry. Sugar Fire. Yes. Was very good. Um, small show. Little smaller than I anticipated, but I'm not a good judge because we were running from meeting to meeting. But high quality. I was thrilled. I, if you know, it was about 25% of, of normal attendance, but I feel like I had an 85, 90% show mm. based on that. Now, the what what's really tough is have a hybrid event. I, like I said, I felt like there was a physical event and a virtual event, and they weren't interacting very much. So I don't know what the experience was of people who were doing the virtual event. I think you probably could have attended a lot of the technical talks and gotten a lot of the content but what i'd been missing for a long time was just the hallway grab of here's someone i haven't seen in two years and we could have done a zoom at any point in the last two years did we no right <laughs> but we're here now and we can have a meeting and and that's really important in the in the industry and uh and i was glad to get back to it i i liked the energy i thought the quality of the conversations i had was fantastic i was glad i was there yeah, there was there was a general sense that I think all of us heard intermittently that the people who were there were kind of the the, the diehard attendees who were going to be there no matter what if there was a physical event, um, and that lended a certain die hard is maybe the wrong term. I, you know, I, I COVID era. I, 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 hardcore, I wrote, hardcore <laughs> would be good. I actually considered this phrasing because I, I wrote we, uh, <laughs> Tiffany and I wrote that article about our SE experience, and I think die hard might actually be. The appropriate choice of words um, for for kind of a risky event, um, and I I but I think it was it was pulled off pretty well, and I think it, we had heard a lot of commentary on the the concentration of attendance, the concentration of in, of interest, and and the ability to have uh, more in depth meetings and more in depth interactions with uh, with higher profile people who who were chosen to attend. Um, it's also worth noting, and this is something that uh, Tiffany pointed out early on that uh, the Attendance of SC21, we got estimates around uh, 3,500, which is around what ISC 2019 was. Uh, mm -hmm. Around 35, they had 3,573 cited, and we heard 3,500 for SC21 in person, and around the same number of exhibitors as well. Look, I don't mean to make light of COVID risk either. Um, you know, I was doing the best I could for me to manage my risk, and, and I thought it was worthwhile for me to be there. Um, you know, for others who made the other personal choice, I understand. I'm not trying to chastise anybody. I did hear one colleague tell me that his colleague came home from the show with COVID. Um, and I'm not going to talk about who that was or, or anything. You know, we're all vaccinated or, or whatever, but, you know, we had to get on airplanes and Ubers and, and some of the late night events were densely packed. I didn't do those, but they were densely packed. And, and I would say masking at the event was uneven at best. Uh, people were not universally wearing masks. And, you know, once, once food and drink was in Involved, then they all disappeared. So, uh, you know, it was a, it was a risk. It was a calculated risk for me that I was uh, uh, willing to do, and I'm glad I did. But then I didn't get COVID either. So, you know, that doesn't make me right. It just that was my experience. I came home with a head cold and not enough swag. Mm. The swag was down, I believe. 
Um, I, I thought it was a very successful event from from my perspective. Uh, you know, I thought y'all y'all had good comments. Um, uh, among that reduced turnout, it was, it was very engaged. Uh, I would be interested to hear, and please, you know, folks, feel free to put put in the chat along with any any other questions you have for us. But I'd be interested to hear from people who who weren't there. You know, what your experience was like, because I think Addison, that you're right that there that it did seem like there were two SCs. I heard I heard that there was a, a Zoom session. Uh, uh, presentation scheduled at the same time as the opening gala, for example. Um, so I think that it was it was good. I think it was one of the first big actual hybrid events that we've had in the community with, or if not the the the, the, the first you know really major one uh, with the in person and the virtual component. I think that there's definitely opportunity. I don't think there's any, I don't think you can ever get it perfect because there's just naturally pros and cons to each of those models. But I think that there's opportunity to, to finesse that and, and fine tune that and get that right. Uh, one of the things I do think was particularly successful though, were, were the, the keynote and the plenary sessions. Um, they were they were very uh, well well attended and, and well received. We had the uh, the plenary on ethics and HPC and AI from Dan Reed. And then the uh, the keynote was from, from Vint Cerf, um, you know, an internet, uh, prominent internet, internet uh, luminary. Um, so those, I thought those those were really well, and even though the the show floor was pretty sparse, um, there those uh, events were well attended, both you know the in person component and uh, the virtual component as well. Um, I know Oliver, you you uh, you wrote about the the plenary. What, what did you think about the plenary, the uh, HPC and AI um, and bias uh, plenary? I thought I thought it was really fascinating. They really brought together a lot of different perspectives for that one, and and meshed them together in a way in ways you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, and I think as we start to you know the word I used in in the article was mainstreaming. As we start to see HPC and AI, uh, you know, come out of the fringes, come out of the, the the nerdy edges of the sectors, and really become a mainstream technology that more and more people interact with on a day to day basis. How do you cope with the ethical implications of that? Um, there are a lot of comparisons to nuclear technology, of course. Um, it's a really fascinating listen if you get a chance. Um, moving, moving. You know, I, I realize I'm I'm going to ask uh, everyone here to make uh, prognostications amid a lot of uncertainty, especially about the Omicron variant. Um, where where do you see in, in the wake of SC21, a couple a couple weeks out now? Uh, where are our big HPC events headed uh, in 2022? Well, prognostication is what we do. I mean, that's our job as analysts. So I am quite pleased to tell you, I have no idea. Uh, I, I really don't know. I plan for these things, but all plans are in pencil. And one thing that this pandemic has really leaned on for me is taking things one day at a time. I plan for it, and then I could decide the day before that my plans have changed. I would like to get back in person to as many meetings as I can with as many clients and as much of the community as I can. But we've got to, you know, everyone's balancing their own uh, uh, personal uh, outlook with that. And um, so that was a long way of saying, I don't know. I'll make a bold prediction. I think that SC has opened the door that events can be done uh, in person with precautions and I think that we're going to see more major events uh, being live. Uh, probably, I'm not positive about GTC, but I do think that uh, ISC will be live and successful as a live event. I hope so. I mean, the question there becomes, was it worth it for the conference people? 
people. You, you get to where conferences have long lead times and a lot of expenses yes. and you have to sign up sponsors in advance. And so we can say, hey, we had a great time, but I don't know what the financial implications have been for the conference organizers here mm-hmm. and whether they have the confidence to go forward and how far in advance do you have to make those decisions. So I think it could still be a rocky road for a little while. Again, it was a bold prediction. Stephanie, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's a good good point, Addison, is that you have to also consider the, the, the conference organizers and the, the uh, financial aspects of that, too. Um, there are a bunch of conferences coming up in the space, and they all right now have a, a you know are scheduled to be in person. There's the GTC that you mentioned in March. There's EuroHPC at Praise Days. That's in Paris in March, actually the same week as uh, GTC. So the NVIDIA conference, there's the Energy HPC conference um, uh, in Houston also in March, uh, Stanford, um, you know, all these like flagship, Stanford HPC conference, all these flagship events, and then going all the way, I'll, I'll go out as far out to the horizon as uh, the ISC, which is in a new city at the end of uh, May um, in, in, in Hamburg, Germany, and, and moving from Frankfurt. So we'll see, but currently they all have a scheduled, uh, schedule, scheduled to be in person. This affects your own company. I mean, you've got this very successful HPC AI on Wall Street conference, which is now shifted to a series of digital dates. And I know Dell is involved in that. We're involved in that. But it's, you know, conference planning is is, is and continues to be hard. Yeah. And uh, Jay and Chad is noting to expect an in-person uh, hybrid HPC community meeting in March. So look out for that, too. Uh, my personal okay. outlook on this is... Uh, U.S. events will continue in person. I'm a little more skeptical about international events, especially where international travel is uh, required or expected for the event to really take off. Mm. I do think ISC will happen, though. I think that'll probably happen because we'll be in the in the late spring, uh, early summer at that point. Um, so moving back to the uh, SE21 show floor, uh, were there any particular sectors or technologies that you thought were winners or loser, losers on the show floor? I know we talked about uh, composability having a moment at SE21. Uh, were there any other new technologies that wowed you? I don't know if I would say wowed. At least there, there were a couple, but I can't say because of NDA, unfortunately. Um, but I did notice a substantial increase, at least as a percentage of the of the show displays, uh, was for liquid cooling and for submersible liquid cooling, immersive liquid cooling. Yeah, I think we're going to start to see an uptick in uh, immersive. I, I had a nice tour of uh, Submers booth. There was a lot of that going on. And, uh, and that topic also came up during the uh, Society of HPC Professionals event, which I got to do uh, just just a couple days ago after SC. So uh, definitely some continuing trends in liquid cooling. I thought we saw a lot of composability, um, composable infrastructures, uh, yes. and not just the, the system level guys like giga io and and liquid but down at the um at the component level with uh, gen z and cxl i think cxl is going to be important maybe once especially once we get out to cxl 2.0 and a lot more mm-hmm. of the components start catching up uh, with an integration with gen z i think that's a subtle trend that we're going to start seeing a lot more of in 2022 2023 agree 
Yeah, the nature of the floor this year with some of the some of the larger vendors not being there was it, it opened up an opportunity for for some of the smaller players. And yeah, we definitely saw a lot of a lot of composable or composable adjacent companies. I probably about half half or just a, just a tiny bit less than half of the people I talked to seem to be within that within that composable wheelhouse. And I, I agree with you, Dan. We're definitely going to be watching what what CXL and uh, Gen Z are doing because especially with the um, that that's kind of a, a critical component to uh, to uh, you know realizing the potential I think of the the composable um, you know some of these the, the composable um, architecture and design. Mm -hmm. So I talked to those those companies as as well, and yeah, a lot of li liquid cooling, um, summer, and some other ones. Um, we mentioned that uh, cool IT was not there, so that gave an opportunity for some other ones to talk more. And then of course Assetech wasn't there either. They uh, they announced earlier this year they were. They were backing out of HPC, um, but yeah. Or bailing out. In. Bailing yeah. out, yes. I'll chip in one more. You know, people who wanted to meet with me virtually instead of in person, I either pulled those Zoom meetings in or pushed them out. And one of the more interesting ones I had there that I hadn't been expecting was I finally got a briefing with Rockport Networks. Uh, I'm probably late to the party with that one, but I finally got a full briefing on it. And I will say I was I was interested in the novel approach to of a, of a peer to peer yeah. and not uh, hub and spoke. So I'm looking which forward list, to hearing more. Yeah, switch list, yeah. Yep. and Dell Dell's actually working with them at PAC on uh, they have uh, some of the nodes of the um, of uh, the system name, but uh, so they've taken over some of the nodes on one of the systems there and to do a experimental test bed for their their switchless network. We should yeah. have mentioned Lone Star Six with regard to immersible as well. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Green Revolution Cooling Immersion System. That's. Uh, and they're also notable on that system is that it's, I believe, tax first system that they're not using, um, that they're that they're they've gone over to they're not using Luster that they've gone over to BGFS on. Kind of notable. Hmm. There's so there's another thing um, in terms of future outlooks uh, connected to COVID concerns, but still distinct from them in a lot of ways, looming over all this. Uh, the supply chain. Uh, I'm sure we're all aware of it and the disruptions that have been caused across uh, not just HPC and technology, but uh, every sector that we're interacting with, especially around the holiday season. Uh, do these massive disruptions uh, change the structure, the balance of things, of companies and chips emerging from 2021 into 2022? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you care to yeah. elaborate? Well, you know, the funny thing is that we talked about this a little bit before that it's it seems like for the most part, it's not big things like motherboards or GPU cards. It's little things like this eight cent resistor that now you can't get so you can't build something without it. It does seem to be hitting entry level and mid range more than it is hitting high end and supercomputing, but not exclusively. We try to dissect the information we can get from the suppliers, especially the big suppliers like Dell and HPE on the server side. Now, both of the both Dell and HPE have slightly offset quarters for reporting, so we you know we wait on some of the major reports there. But uh, yeah, to the extent that the Dell people on the call are willing to give us guidance about how much revenue slides out of the end of 2021 and into early 2022. Uh, that would be useful guidance for us analysts as we do the final 
tally on things. I don't think it's long term. Uh, in the short term, of course, it's yet another thing that swings more people over onto cloud. Cloud has been super maximum during uh, during COVID because cloud deals well with uncertainty, right? You don't know what's going on, then you can pull stuff to cloud and uh, and go utility. Um, and uh, supply chain is another effect that that does that. Do you find that there's um, cer certain vendors or certain spaces are more resistant to the supply chain issues or, or that um, they're able to uh, to get the parts that are available? Yes, but I can't say who. Yeah. So that was really unhelpful interjection <laughs> on my part. So uh, moving ahead a little bit into the Q&A section with some uh, helpful questions here. Um, back to our, our first topic of, of the session. Uh, with China not listing their new large systems and the proliferation of questionable systems like the ones the software company X, is the value legitimacy of the top 500 at risk? Yeah, Tiffany, I'm, I'm going to give that to you. I'm trying to remember the exact quote in one of my articles. Yeah, I asked, I asked Jack Dungara this in the top 500 um, at press uh, briefing and I think he said yes of course if not enough uh, if not enough companies and organizations submit the list will wither and die I think was what he said so yes definitely I, I mean it's at risk but it's not it's substantially more risk than it's ever been in the other times that I've had the, my whole history with the list there have always been mystery systems on the list there have always been mystery systems not on the list it's not just these Chinese systems there are major commercial systems that would be not just on the list but in the elite range on the list that don't get listed and that's always been the case I I, I yeah. go back to my time in the late 90s and early 2000s at SGI and you know we would argue about whether uh whether some company system belonged on the top 500 list because whether it was doing just uh uh just uh, business processing or any real HPC or not and uh and that's it's kind of it's there it's it's always been there I think the bigger effect that we've seen on the list in recent years is hyperscale systems because those are huge scale and you can replicate them over and over and get a bunch of systems on the list a lot of the volume of the Chinese systems on the list are hyperscale systems that's had a bigger effect is it you know but then we go to the show and top 500 is still our number one topic that everyone wants to talk about. So as long as that's true, I don't know how much that the list is really going to go away. I, th I think it's, I think it's interesting. You know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, corporate systems that have always been in the world and known, but not ranking on the list for, for confidentiality reasons. Um, but I think there is something particular with having the top two systems, as far as we best understand, uh, not ranked on the list, but but still competing in other arenas that those uh, research systems are competing in. I mean, we had Gordon, you know, several Gordon Bell Prize nominees and the Gordon Bell Prize winner powered by systems that were not on the list. So you don't get as clear of a division as you get usually between these these corporate systems, like uh, the one that Tesla was talking about this year, and uh, and the research systems that were. I don't know. We about. had this exact same conversation though when the Blue Water system wasn't on the list. Tiffany, yeah. I remember you digging it trying to get the top five the Linpack results on that system, right? <laughs> yep. I may still do it one of these days. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, Next question uh, from Steve Campbell. Uh, interested in thoughts on how the student cluster competition fared? This is aimed mainly at Dan, but comments from all appreciated. It was 
different. Uh, they had two distinct competitions. One was uh, called the Indy 500 competition that um, was online. It was virtual. Uh, I believe it was on Azure. And uh, just a handful of schools competing there. They did have the greater virtual competition, uh, kind of the standard competition, but it was a little hybrid-y because there was a, uh, a team there in person from Clemson. And want to talk about a lonely team, that was a lonely team. Uh, they were just hanging out there. I did not have as much chance as I usually have to really dive into it based on the time constraints, uh, we just had so many meetings. Uh, but a good competition, um, I'm really looking forward to having it back in person, which I think we're going to see at least partially in person at ISC. And, and we should mention, right, that Tsinghua, a university, yes. won again, again, uh, and uh, the sus Sustech supercomputing team from yes. Southern University, University of Science, yep. yes. Science and Technology won the, the LIMPAC on that. Yeah, and Tsinghua is, well, Tsinghua. They are incredibly powerful at this. They go to every competition. Uh, they don't go to lose. We have one more question uh, accompanied by kudos to Jay for uh, putting together the, the <laughs> Q&A panel correctly. Um, so uh, our final question is, what uh, emerging or re-emerging technologies or areas do you think we should be watching in 2022? Mm, good question. Well, I, I think we already kind of got into one of them, which is composability. And that's a re-emerging technology. I remember composable came up 10, 12 years ago and was going to be a big answer. And there's an old analyst adage when you want to find the next new thing, look for what was supposed to be the next new thing 10 or 15 years ago that now is, is finally ready. And, uh, and composability uh, might be that. We're seeing that as an answer to uh, or a proposed solution for over-provisioning or, or being able to handle uh, multiple workloads. I think hybrid cloud is a major part of this discussion, which is really a separate topic. But cloud, you know, let's face it, is here to stay, but also, let's face it, is not displacing on-prem uh, HPC in any kind of uh, uh, true takeout fashion. And what we found over and over is that the majority of the HPC market is, is selectively using public cloud resources sometimes, but, but still keeping the majority of things uh, on-prem. So how to handle um, uh, management of workloads across on-prem and cloud, and also sovereignty of data and efficient data movement, uh, data copying, et cetera, uh, in those situations. I think that's going to be a major discussion. Agreed. I would agree with us. I, I would also add edge, edge, the intersection of edge computing and HPC uh, will be yeah. watching, and uh, quantum quantum computing, um, the, the launch of uh, quant Continuum, a Continuum company. That's the I merger that of uh, yeah, Honeywell and Cambridge uh, launched uh, with uh, this uh, this service this week called Quantum Origin. They are it's um it's random a random number generator as a service, and you know that's uh, underscores a lot of um, important applications. So that launched this week. I would 
also call to mind interconnects based on uh, some of the meetings we had at the show, but also based on uh, meetings I've had after the show. I think this is going to be a new, well, not a new, but a goodly sized battleground. And the amazing thing here is that we got to the end of this hour without talking about AI at all. Um, now, really? so I kind of want to reintroduce this as a topic to go around the table with. But you know, AI, of course, has has altered the HPC landscape in profound ways. But I think, from an HPC head perspective, we're we're really settling down into it's not a completely different. Um, domain as much as it's a new approach to solving different types of problems. Do I want to uh, do a probabilistic model? Do I want to do a deterministic model? Or now with AI, do I want to do an experiential model at, at how to approach things? And they can work interactively. And what we're monitoring in our research is the extent of overlap between HPC and AI. When is it part of the HPC environment? And that can go in two stages machine learning for pre or post processing on either side of the deterministic equations, or you can actually get it integrated in a, in a computational steering or target reduction way and get into AI augmented HPC. And that really is picking up steam and it's having significant influence still on people's configurations, on their budgets. Um, uh, so, you know, I would throw in AI, of course, is, is now what's what's uh, a bit of an evergreen over the last couple of years, but I think that continues to have a big effect the next several. Agree. Uh, I'm also hearing more about uh, not just machine learning, deep learning, but also some unique uh, hardware efforts around inference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you just reminded me, Addison, um, you know, we're talking about SciPearl earlier. They also have a partnership with GraphCore as well. So I was talking about them being emblematic of this diversity in this space. Well, there, there you go. Uh, but there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of AI silicon options out there. We know, we know the leading ones uh, and, and, and NVIDIA, of course. So I think it's going to be interesting and this may be the year this this year ahead might be the year that we start to see you know one or one or two of these pull ahead. I'm not sure how many of how many of these silicon training and inference options the market can support. So that's something not else. All to, of them. Uh, probably <laughs> probably not all of them. Yes. Well, uh, that was the last question aimed at us. But uh, just to segue back over to Jay, uh, going back to that very very first question, uh, Jay Dell is a big consumer of chips. Uh, how are you dealing with supply chain issues? So not an expert on how we do that. Uh, certainly familiar with the fact that we believe that we do it as well as anybody in the business, or actually we believe we do it better than anyone in the business. But I can't say that it's not impacting us because there are companies on, you know, we have a broad partner ecosystem. They each in the silicon space, they each make their allotments and bids and whatnot into the places that manufacture chips. And they even have to apportion how many well, let's just make up a hypothetical example. How many GPUs versus NICs for mm -hmm. if you're a company that happens to now make both of those? And so there are challenges that we face sometimes in, in order delivery times that are not necessarily our part, 
but are based on a part we get from a supplier. Now, all that being said, I think we've managed it very well. And uh, I, I have definitely heard of a small number of customer cases where the delays have been longer than we would have liked and certainly longer than our planning would have resulted in. But for the most part, I think that we've done a real good job of projecting that demand forward. Um, certainly the revenue numbers have shown it. We had another record quarter. Um, so, you know, overall the, the financial impact uh, shows that, or the financial results show that the planning has been good, but there's a whole team at Dell devoted to that. And I don't, I'm not, I don't have oh, I'm sure. insider information to how they manage that supply chain. They just tell me they're the best at it and the results seem to be backing it up. I'm going to ask a couple of quick questions here. One is, uh, as analysts, you guys project on-prem and you uh, also have now started tracking public cloud spending. But you also see the roadmaps for silicon vendors and without disclosing any non-disclosure information from any of our great partners, I think it's pretty clear that the power consumption of chips, CPUs, and accelerators is growing. We're seeing more interest in liquid computing, and that's going to require more retrofitting of data centers, different data center design, et cetera. And one could even project forward and question whether single phase liquid immersion will be sufficient for a long enough time before maybe two phase becomes needed and so on. I guess what I'm saying is there's enough complexity and cost in data center design that I see the possibility some on-prem buyers will want all the advantages of on-prem except the data center and will outsource that to colos. Likewise, some public cloud users who have outsourced the data center and the systems operation to cloud providers, they get a lot of flexibility, but they pay a premium. They might prefer dedicated cycles in a colo to on-demand cycles in a cloud if it gives them a better cost formula as well. So I think I see the rise of colos becoming important due to data center demands and cloud costs, but I haven't seen it tracked. And Addison, well, I know Jay, you I, tracked I, it in your on-prem, yeah, I would assume. It, but yeah. If you wrote down that question and, and typed it out, that would be a white paper that you could sell on the analyst side for a fair bit of money. We have started tracking colo costs as part of our budget map, um, but they tend to be, so far we tracked it as a category within facility spending, which tends to be internal, so it's not part of the total market model. To the extent that it's rent, we could look at putting it in the outbound product and services model. It's you know, it's money that leaves, I guess. But you know, if someone rents a building for their data center, we haven't typically called that part of the HPC market. So there's a question of whether to put it into the products and services spending. We certainly have it as part of the budget. It's been part of the budget map for, uh, this will be the second year that's part of the budget map. We put it in uh, because we saw it rising and that wound up being very important. So um, I validate your white paper. We think it's important. We think it's going to grow and we are tracking it. And I would throw in a comment on liquid cooling that if you are considering, well, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make that less soft. Do liquid cooling. You're going to need to. TDPs are going up. Uh, wattage is going up on everything. And it's going to continue to skyrocket. There's no free lunch. Build in the liquid cooling. And two-phase immersed is the most efficient liquid cooling that I'm aware of. 
I'm not sure the market is quite ready for that. I think the costs need to come down. I think we need to have some more data on the long-term effect of some of those chemicals. Oh, I, on components. I, I, I wasn't saying the market was going that way. I merely used it as a hypothetical example of what okay. people might be concerned about in terms of building their next data center and why they might worry about the life cycle of the next data center not being 20 or 30 years they might worry about it being shorter. And wouldn't it be better if I just outsource this to somebody who builds data centers? I think that there, there, there is a rationale for Colo, absolutely. But it's not, they're not going to find it's a panacea. Because when you do any sort of outsource, you're not just paying for the outsource. You're paying about a 30-point margin. And there's a lot of things that that... I found in my career that data centers can do to capture those savings for themselves with best practices, some investment in facilities, things like that. Um, there is no free lunch. And that's one of the things that we found in uh, cloud research that we've done both quantitative and qualitative is that while some may see it as a panacea, it's not. Understand. Um, with that, I'm going to thank the panelists. Thank you guys for coming back. Thanks very much for participating in this. Thanks for helping us close out the year with a, a great presentation. Uh, a lot of us missed, especially at Dell, since we weren't able to go to SC. You guys gave us a nice distilled version of SC, and we really appreciate that. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.